0: You're listening to Cutaneous Miscellaneous, the Dermatology Residence Podcast. So last episode, we talked with Dr. Jared Gardner, and we all learned that tumor of the follicular infundibulum is in fact a misnomer because it's not infundibular differentiation, it's ismic differentiation. Also, it's not a tumor at all. So this is really just a terrible name. So if you're the one who named tumor of the follicular infundibulum, give me a call. You have some explaining to do. And it got me thinking about all the misnomers we have in dermatology. It caused a lot of confusion for the medical students, but also for other physicians who are non-dermatologists. And I just started making a list here. I just wanted to go through a couple of these. This is really uh, bothering me. So pyoderma gangrenosum, pyoderma means pus in the skin, has nothing to do with infection. It's, of course, autoimmune etiology. Lupus pernio and lupus miliaris the seminus fasciae, nothing to do with lupus erythematosus. This is, of course, a manifestation of sarcoidosis and rosacea and transient acantholytic dermatosis or Grover's disease. It's really, in most cases, not transient at all. Granuloma faciale. There's no granulomas on histology. Kaposi sarcoma, not a sarcoma. Capillaritis, It's a misnomer because there's no vasculitis involved. Tinea amintaceae. Again, misnomer because tinea usually is due to a dermatophyte infection. This has nothing to do with dermatophyte. Fibre of pincus. This is a variant of BCC and not a fibre epithelioma. I can go on and on and on, and don't even get me started on herpes gestationis because I had a patient come in with bullous pempagoid of pregnancy, and somebody mentioned herpes gestationis, and I never heard the end of it. And finally, one of my favorite misnomers or misconceptions or misperceptions, you could say, is the sign of Lesser Trele. The two doctors who coined this, Edmund Lesser and Ulysses Trellet, were in fact discussing eruptive cherry angiomas in patients with cancer, not seborrheic keratosis. It was, in fact, Dr. Hollander who first linked internal cancer with seborrheic keratosis, so another one of my favorite misnomers or misconceptions. So I can't talk about this anymore because I'm getting very frustrated, and I want to jump into our episode because I'm super excited to have our guest today. He's been called a rising star in the field of cosmetic dermatology, but in my opinion, he's already a star. It's great to welcome Dr. Rishi Chopra to the show.
1: Hey, thanks, thanks for having me. Uh, I've been listening to your podcast. It's great. It's great that you had Gerard Gardner on. He taught me a lot in residency about histology and pathology, and I learned a lot off YouTube from him. And so uh, you've got a great lineup of guests, and I'm just excited to have a conversation with you about lasers.
0: We've got an awesome episode ahead of us. We're talking about lasers for the dermatology resident, lasers for the dermatologist, lasers 101, board review, clinical tips, the future of lasers in medicine, and we have a great guest again, uh, Rishi, to discuss this. So, Rishi, let's get started. Uh, first thing we want to talk about is just board review for residents and fellows. You know, what's important to review? What's going to be tested? Can you give me some thoughts on that and, so, and so, just some basic pearls, too, uh, while you're at it?
1: Yeah, sure. I remember, as a, so I trained at SUNY Downstate for residency and. While we did have some lasers, we didn't have access to a lot of lasers, and a lot of our patients were skin of color. So I didn't really have a great laser training in residency. So I can speak to uh, this, you know, probably better than most, because as someone who didn't have laser training, you know, I still ended up in a field with a lot of lasers. And that's what I do primarily uh, on a day to day basis. And so my whole, uh, my, the whole way I went about studying for lasers and cosmetics for the boards is, yes, I used resources like Bologna and Olicon, but it's really important to understand that those resources are very limited, especially Olicon. If you look, I just went back and looked through it, and I saw that probably 60 to 70% of the information in there is either outdated, or it's wrong, or uh, it's, it's not clinically relevant. And what the boards has gravitated and moved towards is more clinically relevant questions, and it's more second, third order than it is first order. And so the, I believe they're called the core exams, test you more on the first order questions, and then your board, your actual clinically applied boards are going to be those second, third order questions. Let's say you treat something with a laser, and it's not responding, what do you do next? And that's a difficult question to answer if you haven't ever had an experience using that type of laser or encountering that particular indication. And I when I was taking my boards, I really didn't have a lot of understanding for how to go about doing that. So what I'd like to tell residents is if you're studying for the board, yes, use those resources that you have, but also realize that you gotta to have to go above and beyond to learn um, energy-based devices and lasers and it's really good to have those like what I what I realized is a lot of lecturers came in for grand rounds or my attendings would teach either very intro basic fundamentals of lasers or you know you'd have this expert come in and they teach you something that was super advanced that they were going to present at ASDS or ASLMS and there was nothing really good in between so you know i hope at least through this podcast that i can provide a little bit of insight into Um, how to address studying for the boards, and also more importantly, just practically learning energy based devices and lasers so that you can implement them in clinical practice when you're just starting out or, you know, towards the end of residency. And so the way that I think about, when I think about any laser, I think about first, the skin and the indication, okay, so what is the target where is the target? And this is actually Gerard Gardner could probably help us with this, because histology is very, very important. It, it's, it's quite remarkable how um, important knowing the histology really well has helped my laser career, because I really, because I had a great um, histology mentor, Dr. Edward Heilman at Downstate, he taught us the pathology of all these indications very well. And so when I actually think about what I'm treating with a laser, I think is this, in the epidermis is this in this papillary dermis, the reticular dermis, is this deeper than that, Is this a very, uh, is this a small target, a big target? What does a chromophore look like if I had to really think about it? And what am I actually targeting with the laser? So that's, I I first think about that. So for example, if you're looking at port wine stains, they can be superficial or deep. If you're looking at tattoo pigment, tattoo pigment is very, uh, it's it's smaller and it's kind of spread out in the the dermis. It could be down deep in, in the dermis. If you're thinking about potentially, you know, let's say treating, an actinic keratosis or let's say just let's just say texture and tone irregularities on the skin that's going to be closer to the DEJ where the melanin lies right so these things are very important to kind of understand when um, going through your laser algorithm as, as, as to how you're going to treat things and I find that when you understand things at a fundamental you don't forget about fluence, forget about all that all those like those fancy uh, laser terms spot size those are very important but if you just really understand the basics you can kind of work backwards to use those terms like fluence, duration, all that to kind of help you guide um, what laser you're going to use and also what settings you're going to use. So oh, by the way, please stop me if I I keep talking um, because I could talk on and on and on about this thing. But um, I think it's just really important because I feel like no one really taught it to me that way. And then it just was like, oh, let me just memorize a bunch of terms. And it didn't really help me apply that to the clinical setting. So when, I'm, when you think about lasers, think about them as in terms of their wavelength, and then also t- in terms of their pulse duration, I feel like that's just a really good way of determining what a laser is going to be indicated for. Okay, so let's say, uh, actually, Nick, do you think most of our listeners are aware of like selective photothermal Rox Anderson, maybe I should go into that a little bit, or no?
0: Um, yeah, Rishi, why not? I don't think most yeah. of our listeners are, I think, um, both a basic overview, but also a little bit more advanced tips are great too, because we have first, second, third year residents. We have early career dermatologists, uh, that want are going to hear about all this and please talk as much as you want. We have all the time in the world and everything you've been saying has been so helpful to me. I've been learning so much already. So, so take it away.
1: Okay. Awesome. So the 101 of lasers and laser fundamentals is this principle of selective photothermolysis. Okay. So this was, a the kind of the groundbreaking paper that was published by the guy who trained me, the dermatologist Dr. Rox Anderson, uh, and he basically discovered that we could use specific wavelengths of lasers to target specific chromophores or targets in the skin. And before and before this, we were trying to achieve something like that. And we would treat vascular lesions with, let's say, a, a you know, a, a, okay, like a pulse dye laser, or not a pulse dye laser, but a laser that, that targets a hemoglobin. But the problem was that it was causing a lot of burns and scars. And so what he figured out is that by pulsing these lasers to create shorter pulses, they can, he can deliver energy in a very controlled manner without causing any excess damage to the skin. And a lot of residents and also attendings get this wrong. They think that selective photothermal license is just about that wavelength chromophore pairing, but that was kind of already discovered. It was the fact that we pulse it, and we shorten that pulse duration. So and we match it to the diameter of our targets. That really helps us perform laser surgery, precise surgery without affecting the collateral, normal skin, just affecting that the lesion that we're trying to target. And so that was groundbreaking. It changed the way that we completely treat treat. uh, Indications and also use lasers, and it opened up this whole new field of, of laser dermatology. And so, when that theory of selective photothermalysis relies on the wavelength, the wavelength meaning that it, uh, each wavelength basically has a specific uh, absorption coefficient with r- various indications or various targets. And so, the you know the ones that we think of in the skin are hemoglobin, water, and melanin, right? And so, that wavelength basically has a higher probability of of targeting a different chromophore based on where you lie on that spectrum of, of wavelengths. And then on top of that, the wavelength, the deeper, the, the greater the wavelength, the deeper the laser is able to penetrate. So if we have like a 1064 nanometer wavelength, that's going to penetrate deeper than like a 532. And it's just, these are just laser principles that are you know pretty basic, but they're important to understand how lasers work. The second thing is you want to vary the, Uh, The pulse duration. And this pulse duration is basically the time that you allow the energy to be uh, the energy to be delivered to the target. So shorter pulse durations are the same amount of energy, but they're just confined to a smaller time period. So you're actually delivering a higher rate of energy into the target. And that can cause, you know, it can cause uh, uh, adverse events if you're not really uh, being careful as to how you're depositing and where you're aiming. So that's the second part. And the third part is the fluence, right? So if let's say you are using a laser that's not super specific for a target, you're going to need a higher fluence to cause any, part- any particular response in that tissue. And so these like three concepts are very, very important. And based on, if you have a good understanding of that, and you also have a good understanding of the lesion and the histology, I think that you can understand lasers very, very well the types of lasers and the names of lasers and all that kind of stuff is kind of, you know, you can learn that afterwards and kind of build off this basis to kind of learn everything. Lasers are very complicated. Even, even to me, I don't know every single laser that is out there. There's dozens of device companies they are coming out with new lasers every day. Um, there are different lasers in different countries, so it can get very, very confusing, even for someone that uses lasers every day, many times a day. So, um, I, I, I always caution others to not try to learn the names of the lasers, but kind of just understand the principles. And then once you like look around, you you learn. Like, let's say somebody comes to you and uh, like a rep at a meeting and talks to you about their laser. You ask them what wavelength is it, shorter pulse is it, is it a longer pulse? You can get a better idea of like what what kind of category this laser lies in, and also what it may treat. And is that laser rep bsing you? Um, and so so that's that's also a very important part when you when you go into actual clinical practice is is knowing uh, where the BS lies. So yeah, these are very important principles. Um, I'm trying to think of other things that I wish I had been told. Like if I'm looking at the Alicon right now, you do not need to know what different media exists for different lasers, gas, liquid, solid, you know, yes, kind of you do, but they're not going to test you on that. Uh, They're not going to test you on quasi-continuous lasers. They're probably not going to test you on, on continuous lasers, Uh, Laser safety important, but you don't have to know like super specifics. Do know your laser terminology. It's going to be important if not for uh, the applied exam for the basic for the core exams. And very, 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 very important is clinical endpoints. I highly recommend anybody that's going to study this material for the boards to read an article by uh, Dr. Molly Warner and Rox Anderson out of uh, Mass General at Harvard. I think they published it in 2015 or 16. It's very, very, very important um, for clinical practice, but also just for understanding what selective photothermolysis is and how you know you did a good job when you treated that patient. And the whole way you know that is a clinical endpoint. Um, I don't think anybody really taught me what clinical endpoints really were until I was applying for a Cosmetic Dermatology Fellowship. But you, know, you kind of see it in Ali Khan, you see it in Bologna, but you're like, what are endpoints? Endpoints, so lasers work on the microscopic level, right? How do we know that we're actually uh, creating a positive change in that patient's skin, right? You could use, use a preset and you fire it at the skin, and so, so what, what happens, right? The preset told you that you're gonna cause an improvement, but you won't know until four to six weeks later, right? Or whatever, whatever three months, whatever you're trying to, whatever you're trying to assess. No, you do know. You do know because these clinical endpoints exist. And if you achieve that clinical endpoint, you know with pretty pretty good certainty that that patient's going to improve. And so, for example, for like if you're treating a uh, port wine stain with a pulse dye laser, the endpoint is clinical purpura. It means you delivered such a high rate of energy that you caused that vessel to pop, to burst. Okay, so purpura. That vessel's not coming back. Uh, if you're treating, uh, rosacea or like a tele, spider telegictasia with a pulse laser, or let's say KTP 532 nanometer laser, how do we know that we actually cause a change? Well, you have, to, you have to titrate the settings to achieve a transient graying or disappearance of the west vessel. Again, that's transient. It's not going to fully, it's going to come back. But you're basically what you're doing is you're causing a little clot to form in that vessel. And that's why you have transient graying. You almost have like an ischemia or like a, a methemoglobin reaction and then that clot just moves away and the vessel fills again. So you have a, you have a disappearance of the vessel initially because you cause that clot, and then since the clot you know embolizes, it goes back to normal, but you know that you caused the change that's gonna cause a vasculitic response, and that vessel is, is gonna be gone in the next three to four weeks.
0: As you're talking here, Rishi, I'm signing up for the uh, surgical core exam because <laughs> I think I'm already ready to go for <laughs> the picture uh, This has been awesome, but I wanna jump in and do a little board review myself I reviewed some um, laser uh, dermatology for tattoos, and I want to talk about some mnemonics and a couple of high yield points, and please, you know, add anything that you uh, think is important. But so the three colors, black, brown, and blue, uh, the mnemonic here is the three Bs, black, brown, and blue, ran R-A-N away from when they saw these three lasers, and the three colors treated are ruby, Alexandrite, and N-D-Yag. So R-A-N, ruby, Alexandrite, and N-D-Yag, uh, the three Bs ran away. And these lasers also can treat pigment and lesions, minocycline hyperpigmentation, and if the uh, ruby is the laser of choice for Nevis of Oto and Ito. And then uh, this next one if you have yellow, white, red, or violet tattoo, you will return visit for two or more treatments with frequency doubled ND YAG. So Y W R V, that's the uh, letters that you'll associate with yellow, white, red, and violet and you'll return for two or more treatments with frequency doubled YAG. Green tattoos, treat with ruby or alexandrite. Red tattoos, cinnabar or mercuric sulfide is most likely to cause allergic reactions. And there, I guess there's a theoretical uh, possibility of anaphylaxis if you treat the laser uh, and release these uh, allergens. White tattoos, there's immediate paradoxical darkening. Uh, this is because there's a reduction of titanium. And then uh, I guess there's also a theoretical explosion risk with treating traumatic tattoos from uh, a gunpowder or fireworks. So any uh, thoughts on just lasers for treating tattoos? I know it's a popular topic on on the exams and in practice as well.
1: Yeah. So the big thing is that we're now using picosecond lasers to treat tattoos and some of the Q-Switch lasers. They're basically, uh, they have a much shorter pulse duration. So you you need much less energy to deposit into the skin. So they're a lot safer because you're basically confining all the energy into a very, 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 very small fraction of a second. And the studies, all the studies show that tattoos are treated better with the picosecond than the Q-switch laser. So they may test you on that. They may test you because when I was uh, graduating, picosecond lasers weren't as big of a thing, but now they're bigger. So they might be testing the picosecond lasers more. Um, From a clinical standpoint, they're really, really expensive compared to Q-switch lasers. So if you're thinking about getting a a a, uh, a Q-switch laser or a picosecond laser, you're probably just fine with the Q-switch laser.
0: Thank you, Rishi. This has been such great information. But hang tight, because I want to deliver a special holiday message to our listeners. Thanks for another amazing year of Cutaneous Miscellaneous. And thanks to all the loyal listeners and special guests. I want to wish everyone a safe and happy holiday season. It's my favorite time of year, and it's the time of year when there's Christmas trees everywhere. They're in the waiting rooms of our clinics and on the backs of our patients with pittoriasis rosea. I want to encourage all of our listeners to practice gratitude this holiday season, and instead of focusing on what you don't have, be grateful for what you have, and please let your loved ones know how much they mean to you during this special time of year. The goal of Cutaneous Miscellaneous is, and always has been, to maximize your potential as a dermatology resident and maximize your board scores while having some fun along the way. And to help with your board's knowledge, we are excited to continue the Boards Booster Question Series this upcoming season. And for even more board review, sign up for the 2024 free Boards Immersion Course, which will take place later this spring virtually. For the residents, don't forget to apply for Rising Derm Stars, which is offered for both the winter and fall in-person conferences. Don't forget to check out our new website, dermsquare.com. It's the leading platform for dermatology professionals to elevate patient care that's unrivaled in thought leadership, partnership, and content while offering world-class learning opportunities. It's at this website where you can find the popular therapy charts, the Under Your Skin and Dermbuster Buster video series, information and highlights regarding our live conferences and links to skin, the Journal of Cutaneous Medicine, and Project Lead, the website for early career dermatologists. That's all I have for now. I'll see you in 2024 with a brand new season of Cutaneous Miscellaneous filled with board review, advice for residents, and so much more. Now let's get back to the episode. So Rishi, we we reviewed some really great fundamental concepts and how these concepts are used clinically, Um, but I want to talk about early career advice. So dermatologists who graduate fellowship may not do a cosmetic fellowship, but may want to do lasers. Lasers are ubiquitous in a lot of offices. So can you give some advice to our resident colleagues who graduate dermatology residency and want to do lasers? Um, How can they get involved in doing lasers and learning lasers as an early career dermatologist without fellowship training? And the first question is, you know, what? three devices would you first purchase amongst all the devices out there? Can you talk about that? Sure. No, that's a great question.
1: I strongly recommend everybody listening to get involved with lasers and energy-based devices to some degree whatsoever. There are so many non-dermatologists, non-physicians that are using these devices, operating these devices. And- These devices are much safer in our hands than they are in theirs because of the training that we've had in dermatology and medicine in general. So I just want to preface by saying that we shouldn't be scared of the device. There are always resources out there to help you learn it better. You just have to be very conscientious of what your limitations are in terms of knowledge and experience and then build off of that. I always, you know, I'm always happy to help. There's so many other mentors that are out out there that are happy to help you learn a laser or learn the principles behind your particular laser. Uh, There's societies like the ASDS or the ASLMS Laser Society, which are great resources for those that are trying to get more involved. And then there's so many papers out there. There's the Laser Journal, the the Laser Medicine Journal. There's the Dermatologic Surgery Journal. There's the Journal of Cosmetic Dermatology. These are all good journals to to read from and you know stay abreast as to what the you know, the the new knowledge is in energy-based devices. Now, if I was just starting out practice, uh, you know, these lasers are very, very expensive. So you have to be very, very cognizant as to who your patient demographic is and what you're trying to accomplish, okay? So let's say I, you know, let's say I live in, you know, I work in the Hamptons and I work in Central Park, right? So I have in the Hamptons population, it's very, you know, sun damaged skin, right? So patients are very Caucasian. And so when patients come to me, They want to correct their fine lines, wrinkles, discoloration, sunspots, all that kind of stuff, all that sun damage. So I want something that's, I want a device that's going to be able to accomplish that. And you, you know, when you're selecting devices, there's, you know, different types of lasers and also light-based devices that it can accomplish that. For example, the Intense Pulse pulse Light or IPL is not a laser, uh, but it can kind of, serve multiple purposes because you can use these filters to kind of hit the reds and the browns. I think of lasers as reds and browns when it comes to surface of the skin. And so when you're looking, when you're thinking about, okay, let's, and I will say this, IPL is great. However, it can't be used in skin of color and it's not as effective as the other laser devices because this is light. It's, you can't use, it's not going to be as high energy or power as your lasers are going to be. So let's say I, I just want one device. I would go with an IPL. You can kind of hit both, right? The reds and the browns. Now, if I just wanted to hit the reds, uh, that's a very common rosacea, spider veins, um, general erythema, like these types of conditions, you know, pulsed eye laser is where I would kind of gravitate towards. And so that's something like your V-beam laser. So those those two are very good for the red, red and browns, and then the V-beam for the reds. And then for the browns, what I really like is I like just the Fraxel dual. Uh, because it just resurfaces the top layer of the skin and kind of gets all that melanin out. And I think that most, if you ask most dermatologists, that would be like one of the first lasers that they, uh, that and sorry, the fractal dual is a, is a thulium laser from, from, from Sulta. i sorry. I don't know. I don't know how familiar everybody is with individual lasers, but that's a resurfacing laser that, you know, kind of uh, hits the, the, the skin at the, the dermal epidermal junction and kind of resurface and that melanin, and that pigment kind of just flakes off. So like, I, you know, the three or two, two or three first lasers, either an IPL or a V beam for redness and a fractal dual for the Browns. And then if you wanted something extra on top of that, I would probably get like a skin tightening device because um, that's very hot nowadays and very little downtime. Those are like the soft wave devices or the, or the uh, that's the ultrasound device Then you know, all ulthera- therapy, which is high intensity focus ultrasound or uh, the Thermage, which is the radio frequency devices. So these are all like non-laser devices that tighten the skin because they're able to deposit energy much deeper into the skin than with laser light because of the different modes of of the electromagnetic spectrum.
0: Awesome. I mean, would you say the learning curve is in steep if you haven't done these in residency or... After a while, a couple of months, you work with somebody that you've joined in practice and get some training or work with the reps and read a little bit. Do you think that a dermatologist could become comfortable in three to six months doing basics on these device and then working, uh, getting better with their skills as they improve in their practice?
1: So the learning curve is... Hundred percent, very steep. I wouldn't. I would not say that three to six months out, you're going to be comfortable using these devices at least safely. Uh, and I and that I, I caution everybody. You, we should definitely take more ownership of of the field and and also you know use these devices more frequently, but also more carefully. Do so than you know our counterparts that are non dermatologists. And, and the way that they're using it. So I think that it's you know it will take years to become co- comfortable in using lasers in everyday practice. But by baby steps and learning and you know going to meetings and, and reading publications, talking to your colleagues, talking to experts, you slowly but surely will build upon that. Obviously, I would recommend that anybody pers- that's really really interested and that's all they want to do to pursue a, a fellowship. But you don't you don't have to to use these lasers and. The great thing is, is that the companies that sell these lasers don't want you to burn people with the or burn patients with the lasers, so they give you preset settings. Now these settings are CYA settings, but there's there's there a place to start, and then there's a place to build. There's a place to build from.
0: Right, so it's possible to do it without a fellowship. You just have to go to meetings, read the literature, talk with the companies, get training, uh, and then. In- prove your skills, and work with these. And after a while, it may not take three to six months, but if you put the time in, you can be a laser expert in a couple of years. So Rishi, we're almost out of time here, but I just want to hear from you the future of aesthetic devices, the future of laser medicine. As residents are coming out in the next three to five years, what should they be looking for now and what is on in the pipeline on the horizon in this amazing and uh, evolving field?
1: Oh, the next 10 years of aesthetics is going to be very, very cool. There's going to be this this, this whole movement towards artificial intelligence and machine learning and then there's this other movement into skin of color lasers right because a lot of the energy-based devices we have today are we're limited in, in our use of skin of color because you know the melanin in, in, in the epidermis and dej prevent us from treating skin deeper safely and so there's this very new cool device called the avava uh, myriad device and it's basically the fraxel for skin of color and so what essentially this device does is like the fractal creates fractionated microthermal injury zones in the skin, right? That's what kind of what fractionated a delivery of energy is. This does so in a conical shape. So the, the focus of the beam of the laser is below the dermal epidermal junction into the dermis and all that energy is concentrated there versus all the energy is coming down in a cylinder. I don't know. It's hard to explain without an image but instead of the energy coming down straight in a cylinder all the same fluence throughout that that cylinder it's now conical where this beam is now concentrating all this energy kind of like confocal directly it deeper into the skin and the surface of the skin is almost untouched because it just there's very little energy there and it's going to be very safe for skin of color it's it's going to it should have been out by i think the i think the end of fall so i think we're going to be seeing that on the market pretty soon and seeing those results but what's really really cool about it it's one of the first lasers that can non-ablatively tighten the skin because it can deliver such high energies deeper into the skin without causing any epidermal damage. So that's very cool. Then we have the micro the microcoring device which is really cool which is basically a mini facelift. And so this is a really cool story. I don't I know we'll kind of rush for time but um, Rox Anderson what he Realized, this is how brilliant Rox is, by the way. He he realized that when we get IVs and we have these large bore needles in our arm, why don't we get any scarring? Why do we have these large bore me- needles and there's no scar? If you look at your arm, there's no scar from any of those IVs that went in. And so he asked his fellows to basically do an experiment to see how big you can create the bore, the core, the bore of the needle, the, the gauge of the needle to not cause a scar. And what they found was basically around 500 microns or a half a millimeter, you get no scar if you cut that skin out. And so he created a device that takes out thousands of pieces of skin from your face without any scar whatsoever. And then the, the skin basically shrink wraps and tightens and rejuvenates. So that's a really cool procedure that's out. Um, that's been out for about two years. And then the third device is the the Acure device, one of the acne devices. So there's two acne devices. This is the 1726 nanometer Avaclear and then the Acure. And what's great about the secure device also created by the same group that made the uh, Vaba and Myria is that this device is, um, it, it only, it's only selective for the sebaceous gland. Unlike the other lasers that are, you know, they out there for acne right now that basically are just, uh, their chromophore is water. This is specifically celocytes and it uses a mechanism that basically, uh, senses the heat in this the surface of the skin and tells you when that sebaceous gland is cooked so there's really no thinking behind it the machine in the laser senses the heat and shuts off the laser beam once that that heat is achieved because that's an indicator that the sebaceous gland is cooked so it's one of the first devices that we have that's able to create its own feedback mechanism to prevent complications and actually create the outcome that that's needed
0: awesome so it sounds like so many exciting devices in the near future in this, uh, again, amazing, evolving field, aesthetic dermatology is such an important part of dermatology. We're almost done with the episode here. I got to ask you one more thing, Rishi. I know you practice in the Hamptons in New York City, Central Park, and I think Central Park is one of the coolest parts of New York City. I used to love going there when I lived there. So what is your favorite part of Central Park? You're asking? So that's a a
1: great question. So Central Park is huge. (laughs) So it's a very good question. So when I tell people that I work in Central Park I really should be telling them I work at like a corner of Central Park because it's so big so I, I work at the southeast corner of Central Park clo- like close to Columbus Circle. Um, it's I mean it's my favorite part because I, because I work there every day but it's right all along Fifth Avenue it's it's, it's beautiful. Um, I feel blessed every I walk to work across the south border of Central Park every day from Columbus Circle and it's honestly the walk like just walking along it the little horse carriages. Um, everybody, the tourists that are there, the people that are going to work there, the people that are staying at the crown, the Plaza hotel. Um, it's just that it, you you actually feel like old New York when you're walking to work every day. And I think that's really cool because I feel that New York in general has changed and transformed so much over the last 10 years. And I feel like the central park portion really hasn't because it can't, right? Cause it's just, it's a park. And then what's directly around it is you know, they try to maintain some semblance of what old New York was. So I think it's pretty cool.
0: Central Park is so magical. You feel like you're in a movie. I love everything about it. I love it at Christmas time when the Plaza Hotel is lit up. And I like taking that walk. I guess it's down Literary Walk uh, with the benches and trees on the side right to the uh, Navy Terrace and Bethesda Fountain looking across the boathouse. It never, never gets old. So Rishi, thank you again. This episode was just jam-packed. And if you weren't laser focused while listening, you better listen again because you would to no words we've got so many great practical tips board review tips the future of laser and aesthetic medicine so again really appreciate your time and you really helped out me the residents and any every dermatologist listening
1: awesome thanks so much for having me on nick i appreciate it you're doing good work here having everybody on here to kind of share their expertise i love it
0: thank you so much